Hey, this is Jeff Labar. You're listening to Focus on Metal. Turn it up. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another episode of Focus on Metal. Hope you guys enjoyed the last few weeks of shows, and judging by the response that we've had on those, I would uh, say those have been a resounding success. And of course, we've had several weeks running of some really cool mainstream, high-profile guys. And this week, we're going to swing it the other way for a change and uh, actually tackle somebody that does a behind-the-scenes guy. I'm not sure how he did it, but Richie was able to hook up with the legendary Derek Schulman and do a great interview with this guy. And I'm uh, I'm a little bit jealous that Richie got to talk to him because Derek is definitely uh, someone who's had a storied career in our music industry. I mean, hell, the guy's been active in music for uh, two years longer than I've even been alive. So amazing stuff this guy's been involved with, obviously doing the uh, prog rock group Gentle Giant. And after that, stepping out from behind the microphone and going into doing all kinds of work with the record companies as an A&R guy, as well as an executive. And of course, he's responsible for a lot of major signings of some bands that you guys will definitely recognize, including, of course, the guy who kicked the show off, Jeff Labar. Yeah, he's the guy who signed Cinderella. And uh, he also went on to uh, some other good A&R stuff, signing guys like uh, all these little bands called Dream Theater and Pantera. So uh, obviously, Guy knows some great music when he hears it. And as I said, Richie sat down with Derek, talked all about his career, what he thinks about what's going on with the past, what's going on for the future, and uh, got some great stories from him. So if you're at all into any of the music history or recording and all that, I think you're definitely going to enjoy the interview that Richie did this week with Derek Shillman. So how about I shut up and we can get right into that interview right now. So I really do want to talk to you about, um, you know, when you got into the A&R stuff after, you you know, after being in a band, like, mm-hmm. um, how did that process start for you? Like, was that something you looked for? Like, was there an ad in, in, a, in a newspaper or something? How did you actually <laughs> get into that? Uh, no, no, that, that doesn't work like that. It's, um, uh, when I, when I, uh, decided to, to well, we decided to, uh, basically break up the band of my brother and myself. Um, it was, it was basically done, um, not at a whim, but basically we, we were just, you know, I, I, I had had enough of touring. I had a family, uh, Carrie Benier had the same, same situation. He had a family and, and, um, we basically said, you know, at the end of the U S tour, we were supposed to do another album, another European tour, but it was really, we, we realized, I think that, um, it, it, it wasn't the same. It was almost like a real job. And when, a real when a musician's job or a creative job becomes like a real job, it is time to stop it and 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 cut it off. So that's what happened basically. So I I was living in California, and um, which I'd moved to because of uh, the Gentle Giant situation, and and um, overseeing that part. And um, for a year and a half, I was uh, debating. Should I, I got offers to to produce and and, and do new things, but uh, it was I wasn't sure to tell you the truth. And then I got a call. A friend of mine from the UK who had moved to the US, um, for, he used to work for Christmas Records, and he said, have you, have you ever thought of working for a record company? And to tell you the truth, I didn't because um, 
it was almost like the uh, the dark side of the business. It was almost like Darth Vader. <laughs> However, um, that being said, um, it, you know, it was um, it was it was something I had to, I had to make a living. <laughs> um, you know, I, we made a you know decent living at General Giant, but I had a family, and so I decided to uh, meet the people at Polygram uh, uh, in late '81. And uh, in fact, um, I, w- I was hired, in fact, to uh, do promotion, radio promotion, in Artist Development in, in early '82. So I, we moved from well, I was in actually Dallas for a period of time uh, with my wife and, and my daughter, and um, went to New York to uh, join the dark side, as it were. Yeah. So it was it was really someone who called me. Who were, we were friends from years before, and said, "Had you?" Uh, had you ever considered? And I hadn't. But when I thought about it, I said, "Well, you know what? Let me see what it's like." Yeah. And um, and I did. Yeah. Now, what what made you think you could actually do the job? Like, did you go in thinking, "Yeah, this I you know I've been on the other side of the business, so that I should be able to bring that over and do the A and R stuff"? Or was there any doubt in well, your mind? Uh, no, it, it, it was it was nothing. I mean, to do to do a job, you know, to tell you the truth, it was uh, it wasn't even a matter of could I do it? Could I do a job? I mean. It was uh, it was a music business, and I thought, okay, I could bring my expertise um, because I, I had looked after the band for the last in a quasi management area as well as with with Ray, of course, um, in the last few years. So I kind of learned about what it was as far as uh, the business was concerned, um, and and reali- realizing even during the period of the last couple of years of Gentle Giant, it wasn't the music business. To tell you the truth, it was a business of music, and that was a sad part. And in fact, the very first day, I remember going in the polygram and thinking, and this is what my first job was, of course, uh, and my office, and, and, and I, uh, I thought, damn it, I got to get out of this because it was it was the business of music, and people were there. They lo- they loved the job and they loved the perks and everything else, but really, it was about selling at the time LPs uh, and it, it and and the most LPs, and it wasn't quite about what the artist and the, and the music was about. And I thought, well, you know, I got to swallow my, my, um, I don't know, nausea and see if I could put some of uh, the things I've learned as a musician into the jobs that I, I had landed in, if you like. Yeah. Now, how did you find out about the bands to go and see in the beginning? Like, cause you're talking way before the internet, like, how did you? Did was it word of mouth? Was it newspapers? What, what did you have uh, scouts there, out there? There were there were there, there, there was um, radio was very important and, and attorneys who represented you bands or or yeah word of mouth actually the best word of mouth always and the best A and R always came and still does by the way come from musicians themselves. Um, so you know I, certainly um, well, well the first artist I signed believe or not was Bon Jovi. Uh, and that was, you know, for good or bad or indifferent, I think for good, actually, for the most part, for everyone. Um, uh, and, and I heard a song uh, which was being played on the radio in, in New York. And um, <clears throat> virtually at the same time, an attorney from Philadelphia had said, I've got a guy called John Bon Jovi. He's got a couple of songs, one's on the radio <clears throat> as a compilation. And I, I heard a couple of songs and I thought they were they were great, and uh, and I met John. Uh, he had put this band together, but it wasn't the band that you saw. Uh, and I thought that um, 
I, I, I met him and I saw the potential and drive in his own persona and thought, well, this, this, I think this can work. Um, to put that, so, so to cut to the chase, you know, we, he put the band together. He, he, we decided what name it was. I put him together with, with a, a manager. And, um, I think ultimately the rest is history. He made two albums, which, I mean, the first song, which I'd heard on the radio was Runaway, which I thought it was incredibly catchy and, and had the right vibe for the right time, et cetera, et cetera. This was at the beginning of the MTV era, of course, as well. And he looked fantastic. He had an amazing amount of actual drive. He, want, he wanted to be bigger than Elvis. And, and that was unstoppable. And, and, the, and the fact that I sat down with him and saw his energy and drive and ambition and, 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 and basically put it together with him uh, to make it happen. So that was my first entry, if you like, into the A&R world. And then, you know, apart from and then, uh, you heard from other people, other bands, other, other uh, musicians, attorneys, et cetera. And once you got one success, people started coming to you. So it was uh, looking out what was best and what was not best, actually. Yeah, I've often been interested now, um, when you start signing bands, like, did the first band you brought to the label, was that Bon Jovi, or did they actually reject some bands before they actually signed them? No, that was Bon Jovi. Was wow. Wow. Cause I, like, I mean, actually, actually, actually signed through the label. There was a, there was, uh, there were a couple of things when I was doing the uh, promotion and marketing that I, I read, I said, this is a great idea. I mean, yeah, but again, as an official in the A&R function, that was the first band, uh, together with a band out of Boston, actually, at virtually the same week, who, who I thought were fantastic, but were a, was more of a work project than Bon Jovi. And that was a band called Rubber Rodeo, who everyone's forgotten about. But I, I, what I try to do is balance something which I thought had um, unbelievable commercial potential, which, you know, Bon Jovi certainly did, as well as Cinderella, at the same time, sign a band that, that had a lot of work to be done and it didn't fit into any category, but I wanted them to succeed as well. So like Cinderella, for instance, when I signed them, I called Dan Reed Network. And Dan Reed was completely off the map as far as where radio was going and MTV, MTV was going, but they were superb live. And they still, but they, but they didn't make it in, in, in the way that I wanted them to and should have, but they certainly uh, made, a ma- made a mark in, in, uh, in Europe, actually, and still doing very well, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so I, what I try and do is balance my, my portfolio, if you like. Oh, 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 oh,
Yeah, so like, when you saw a band play, were you looking, did you go on gut instinct? Like, were you, or did you look at them like, a, you know, I'm looking for the finished article here, or I want a raw band that I can mold in a way that, you know, that I think can break? Um, there, was, there were various, uh, I mean, we were talking across the board for many years. Um, Usually it was more a raw material. I, I would see something in, in the band that I think I thought that could be yeah, very successful and, and work with them to try to steer them in that direction, whatever in whatever direction that was, to get the right producer, to get the right, the right uh, uh, songs. I mean, I'd literally write songs with, with some of the bands. And, you know, and, and some, you know that, that would be some of them. Sometimes a band would... would I'd hear about a band and, and go see them. and uh, and and it didn't translate into things that uh, or bands that I I thought were going to be you know big. And the most important thing was to be a, a, a superb live band. Um, the one band I will I will remember never forget, of course, um, is going to see Pantera. <coughs> excuse me, um, in Texas, and I, I was very interested in them while in my last year or two of, of Polygram. But I knew I I was moving on to be the president of ACO. And uh, I said to the attorney who was um, pitching them, and they didn't have any any other companies who were like looking at them because they were completely out of the norm of what was happening at radio and MTV and, and this, that, and the other. And I went down to to, uh, to uh, Dallas, actually, after a scout went to see them, they said, it, this band is amazing. And I went there, and they were playing in a club of, of you know, 50 or 50 people, uh, hoping that I saw, I saw a videotape, and I hoped that, they were as good as a videotape, and I went there, and they completely, utterly blew me away. They were most, one of the most amazing live bands I'd ever seen in my life, and I knew, I knew then that they were going to be huge, even playing to thirty people. Wow! So they were, they were, they had, they had the raw energy, the talent before, way before I, I got involved in, in the music side and signing them. Yeah, uh, but that was rare. I mean, that's that's unusual. Danny Network had the very same thing. Again, they they kind of made it, but kind of didn't. Um, but usually, but, but usually, I, I try to work with them to see the end result, you know, uh, as a, as a sort of a raw, a raw kind of a dynamic, if you like. Is there any of the musicians like showed a keen interest in what you actually did, or did they just trust you to do what you were doing? Well, the musicians in the bands, uh, yeah, uh, no, yeah. For the most part, I think there was a there, a, there was a lot of trust because. Um, uh, for the most part, I, you know, they they couldn't, you know, a lot of people in the business um, were um, just people in the business, and and I'd 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 been I'd been on the on the on stage, I'd been you know on the road, I'd I'd, I'd written songs, I you know from when I was at school, I was in a band before Gentle Giant, I was in a band called Simon Dufresne and the Big Sound, and we had you know top ten top ten singles, so I could relate to anything they could speak to me about, whether it's writing, recording. Uh, going on the road, you know, doing shows, two or three shows a night sometimes. So there was a trust, I think, that they they knew that I, could, I, could, I had done what they were doing. So I was on their side, not just the company side. Yeah. Now, you mentioned yeah. John Bon Jovi earlier on. I'm sure he probably, like, if he was so driven, he probably really wanted to know what you were actually doing with the band. Would that be fair to say? Um, I think there was mutual trust, to tell you the truth. I think that... Uh, you know, I went to meet his mom and dad, and 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 um, in, in Jersey, and and they basically said, take care of my son. 
but but John was uh, John was very much um, he he knew what he wanted to be. He absolutely did, even as a you know twenty twenty one year old, uh, and that kind of vision and drive. You, you, it's, it's very unusual to have that, uh, but he had it, and um, and and he had the potential to have the. Uh, it was a potential to be who he became. Um, he had to learn. <clears throat> I mean, I got him involved with Doc McGee as a manager, and and, and together we got him, you know, the right producers. Ultimately, you know, the best album was the third album. It wasn't the first or second with Bruce Fairburn and Bob Rock, Slippery and Wet. I got him together with. Um, with uh, um, what's it say? Uh, <laughs> songwriter on Black Desmond, Desmond Child. Des- Des- Desmond, yeah, uh, Desmond. Uh, you know, I I heard about Desmond from actually Gene Simmons um, because I I've heard a couple of songs from Kiss, and I said, well, I'm not sure if the, the guys in Kiss can write choruses like this. Who who who's Child? And 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 Gene said, there's a guy called Desmond Child. He used to be in a band called Desmond Child Rouge. And I said, how can I meet him? And he he actually turned me on to Desmond. Who I turned on to John and the band, and together, you know, they they made probably one of the biggest uh, rock albums ever. Yeah, no, you, you know, you, you, John John wrote with Desmond and Richie Sambora for a while, and that that worked. But did I, did you try and get that together with any other bands who were the outside songwriters, and they resisted it? They didn't really, didn't really want to do it. Um, that was that was an unusual case there because it usually, um. Bands, uh, no, no, I didn't actually. I, I that was that was a very unusual case for me. Usually, bands would would write their own music, and 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 be self sufficient. Um, to to place a writer in a place where um, other writers would, would play wasn't wasn't what I was looking for. John wanted that, and I and I, I agreed with it because he wanted the biggest hits, and you know what? And then he was able to get out what. What what happened on the third album? Other bands, um, you know, I'd, I'd actually write a couple of songs in a studio or, or or help out with other bands, but for the most part, m- most bands are very self sufficient. Yeah. Now, the A and R people from the the other labels, could you be friendly with them at all, or, or was the rivalry pretty intense amongst all you guys? Um, I, you know, I never I never even pondered it, to tell you the truth. I mean, I was I was a I was only A and R. I mean, certainly as far as a and R uh, as a job for uh, you know uh, uh, six five or six years, and then I became president, which I still never saw the 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 uh, the, um, the signings, of course, and I, I, I vetoed them. Uh, but no, I, I, there was no you know there was no rivalry. I mean, I, the only thing that you know that that were <laughs> only thing that was probably uh, um, that could be on your mind was letting a, a, a hit or hit act uh, go by and pass on them. And that was, uh, you know, that was unusual. And when that happened, um, you thought, damn it, how, how come I didn't see the potential in this band? And that happened a couple of times to me. And I, you know, uh, but nevertheless, as far as rivalry is concerned, and and jumping in there and, and doing and being in a, in a, a contest, that was never never on my uh, radar at all. In fact, most of the bands that I signed, most most other other people who were looking at them weren't even aware of them. And that goes on to. Bands like you know Slipknot, Nickelback, etc. I mean, you know, Pantera, Dream Theater. They were just they, no no one had looked at them. No one was saying, okay, look, it's going to be a bidding war. I mean, that was that was one thing I always avoided.
when, when you went up to the label signed these bands did they know that none of the other labels were looking at them and they looked at you and went hang on a second nobody else is looking at these guys why should we sign them no I did, that, that didn't matter to me in fact that was a, you know that was a bonus I mean the, <laughs> literally I mean Nickelback was a, a, a very interesting case in the fact they did the first album um, stand on their own money with, with their own money um, in Vancouver and could even get a, a deal in, in Canada um, but I've heard the potential in, in the first song on that, that album, which is um, Leader of Men. And I kept playing it and playing it. And, and then my head of promotion at, um, at uh, Roadrunner um, kept saying, this is, this is great. I mean, we should, we should really look at this band. And, uh, and I did. And, and we signed them for a very um, easy deal because there was no one else lighting up. It was very different. It was very different from most of the other rock. It was certainly different for some of the bands or most of the bands on the label. But, you know, the next album, uh, uh, Silver Side Up, um, you had uh, How You Remind Me, which became a gigantic song and and through the, and made the company a, a major, major corporation. Yeah, was that the song so, you got on the Spider-Man soundtrack? Uh, I don't remember that what the soundtrack was, but it was, I mean, How You Remind Me was a, a gigantic hit worldwide. Yeah. Now, in, in the height of the 80s, um, who was more difficult to deal with MTV for you, MTV or radio? Um, actually, it was in, in in that respect, uh, both were were difficult and easy. It was much a much easier time. Um, they they were radio and MTV were the probably only two games in town to work as a, as a as a record company. Obviously, the band had to tour, but you know there wasn't the, the a mass of other things. That you know transpired in the in the late nineties and, and from then on, there wasn't an internet, there wasn't social media, there wasn't um, uh, Spotify, there wasn't streaming, there wasn't downloads. It was really just very, a much more simple period. And if you were able to get catch a wave in the radio, MTV MTV would look at it, and and uh, that it was it was a period of time when um, it, it was it was it was a, a, again a period of time when it was an easier way to break a band, to tell you the truth. Um, nowadays, it's, it's, there's about, it was, a, it was a period of time when the puzzle were about, was about 10 or 15 pieces. Nowadays, it's about 10 or 1,500 pieces. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned there about getting producers to work with certain bands like Bruce Fairborn and Bob Rock. I've interviewed Bob Rock and the likes of Andy Johns and, and all these guys. Of course. What, 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 what was the decision process in getting a certain producer to work with a certain band? Was, did it come from the band themselves, like they'd like to work with a guy? How, how big an impact did you ha- input did you have on that? No, it was, it was usually, um, I guess, my, my um, knowledge of what a producer could do for a certain band. I mean, certain bands um, just, just needed to uh, you know, get their, their sound down into um, onto onto tape back in the day. It wasn't uh, it wasn't digits then, um, and 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 capture the energy they had had live. Other producers would have to kind of co-write and and, and nurture a band. Um, and I knew the producers, and, and for most, the most part, we you know they were good musicians. And um, I I suggest the right, I, hopefully the right producer for the right band. In certain bands, I mean like like Andy Johns. Uh, certain producers, should I say, like an Andy Johns and or um, I'm blanking on other other people I've used, 
but uh, they didn't understand what a great guitar sound would sound like. And if you had a great guitar band, you'd have you have him, you know, giving his shot shot to learn to them. Uh, a song, you know, someone who could craft songs and get a vibe in the studio, like a like a, a Severn or a Rock, would would be another thing. Kevin Sherko uh, would would understand that situation too. I mean, there's a, different producers are good for different bands, and I know what they were good at and how they drag what was the best of the band to become ultimately a, a record. Yeah. Now, were you someone who wanted to know, wanted to hear rough mixes as it went on, or did you wait, did you just leave the band alone until they were done? No, I, I, I'd want to hear what was going on as as it was uh, happening because uh, you know rough mixes is you are usually close to what the mixes become, and and that's and that's uh, um, you know you have to be you have to be sure that uh, what you would what you would you would pay for and what you wanted to finish up the way that you expect. And I'll say this: there's a couple of times uh, where a demo uh, would turn out to be better than the uh, than the finished article. I remember the Rembrandt. If you remember them at uh, mm-hmm. Atco, yeah. Um, I had they give me actually a, f- a fully, a, f- a fully uh, done album as a demo. It was, it was like their home demo, and it was it was it was magical. They, they captured a mood, and I said, "This is great." I mean, let's get a, a producer. I can't remember who we got in. Uh, but uh, we spent you know X amount on the producer capture the same energy mood you know uh, kind of sound that that the demo uh, had uh, um, captured and in fact what I did was was uh, kind of sideline the actual recorded album and put out the the demoed album uh, instead. Wow, and and, and made you know mastered it properly and made it sound better. But yeah, that's it did happen like that as well. Yeah, did it ever happen where a project wasn't going the way you wanted it to, and you had to change producer in the middle of it? Um, yeah, so yeah, actually, now I'm, I'm thinking of Jesus, I mean, this is a long time ago. Yeah, uh, for the most part, no, but um, in the, you know, actually, well, the second Bon Jovi album was very hard to make. Uh, that was uh, it started by Lance Quinn in Jersey, and we had to bring in uh, Tony Beyond Bon Jovi, who's the second cousin. Uh, to kind of uh, remake it for the band, but for the most part, uh, um, I don't think I, I don't think there was much. Um, I'm thinking back actually about uh, no, I don't think that there were any times when Steve um, Jones I had to let him go a couple of times because unfortunately, um, this was towards the, you know the latter part of his his life. Uh, he was uh, he he understood what it was and, and got what what. The band was doing, but he was not able to control himself. Okay. And I had to bring other producers in into there. But for the most part, the producer I, I, I and we chose was the producer that ended up making the record. Yeah. What, what was the problem with Andy Johns and drummers? <laughs> when, when did you hear that? Um, Robin McCauley was one guy who told me. Um, I've a, co- one, a couple of people have said it to me that played on albums that, uh, you know, of course, the Cinderella story is another one. Of course, right. That was it. Um, well, yeah, he was a, in, in fact, rightly so, very particular about the rhythm section. And, and you know, if you didn't have a, an incredible rhythm section, you just couldn't build on top of that. And, and so, you know, and timing and and fills and everything else were very important. And he was actually very, in, in a lot of ways, right on as far as having a great rhythm section with a with a with a rock band because. 
when you've got you know if you don't have a, a, an incredible rhythm section, which means bass and drums, uh, doing the right thing for music on top, then it will never rock as hard as it it should do. So he was he was very particular, but rightly so. Yeah. Now I I just want to ask you about some of the bands that you work with. Try and get some more specific uh, answers. Um, you've already we've already touched on Cinderella, Dan Reed, and Bon Jovi. I do want to ask you about Kingdom Come. project on Little Mountain Sound and I talked to James Kotek all about that album that they did with Bob Rock and James is a great guy but of course the big controversy when that came out was the Led Zeppelin thing um, and they sure. say there's no you know there's no such thing as bad publicity but at the time that band got hammered because of that but it, it only got hammered because uh, Lenny um Lenny, Lenny um, is is a mercurial character. Uh, I think the well, the album obviously did incredibly well. I mean, you know, it was the first album that people, yes, people thought it was sounded just like Led Zeppelin, uh, and it did. You know, <laughs> uh, and there's nothing wrong with having influences. The problem was that Lenny uh, kind of like discounted, uh, you know, the, the the influence of course, and and. It was open. It was basically said in interviews, which I try to keep his mouth closed, that it didn't. It didn't. There was no influence there. Had he has, had he has said, yeah, I mean, you know, Robert was an incredible uh, uh, influence on me, and, and I'm very proud to you know to uh, carry the mantle of the sound of a Zeppelin on. They wouldn't have got hammered. But the problem was, Lenny basically discounted the influence, and so therefore. You know, the press would 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 be uh, you know, would turn around and say, "What are you talking about?" You know, had he had he had he been um, gracious um, about it, then I don't think it would have been quite as 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 torn up about it. However, that being said, the album went multi platinum. Yeah, were were you instrumental in getting them on the the Monsters of Rock tour with the Scorpions and Van Halen? Yeah, of course. Well, I was instrumental a bit. I mean, I, the manager was a guy called Marty Wolf, but I was. You know, knowing everyone around and being involved in the business, yeah, I was you know there. And in fact, that's the times when I would try to sit down. I was I was probably the only person, and still I actually still am, with Lenny to say, Lenny, stop talking. 
<laughs> just, just, just sing your ass off, which you could, and don't say anything. And he, but he, unfortunately, he, he, it doesn't. Uh, I'm not there. Didn't heed it, and so therefore, it was, it was a, it was a, a huge, huge record. And the second one was also very big. But of course, the critics were, were became negative because it, it, they were, they, they didn't acknowledge um, their influence, which of course is that one. Yeah. Now the second record in your face, you changed producers from Bob Rock to, to Keith Olsen. What made you change producers? Was just Bob just well, not available? Well, but I, I was actually moving to become president of, of uh, ADCO at that ah, time. Okay. So I, I moved on and, and uh, um, signed, you know, literally at the very same time when they were going to the studio, I told Bob that I, um, yeah, I'm not around. And, and so he was concerned about that. And, and so therefore, whoever took over at, at Polygram uh, got Keith involved. Uh, and, you know, that, during that period of time, I, you know, I signed bands like, you know, Enough's Enough and, and um, also sort of Pantera, et cetera, et cetera. So I was, I, was, I was almost kind of out of there in some ways. Yeah, I, I just had my finger in the pulse. Yeah, I want to ask you about a couple of the Echo bands. Um, I, I spoke to Derek Oliver last week about Tangier. Now, I love that Four Winds record, and it, it just never sure. happened for him. No, it was it was it was uh, no, it was a great record actually, but um, it was an, almost the closing of an era of of um, of the kind of like rock, you know, the MTV rock. Um, uh, and, and, and the grunge thing was coming through, uh, and it was it was it was um, a little bit of a manufactured record, but nevertheless, it was a great record in the, in the, in that world. Had it had it come four or three or four years earlier, I think it would have had a much better in, impact and, and and showing. But it was kind of the end of that 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 era, and we, you know, we spent a lot of money on it, but it just didn't catch because other things were coming through. MTV was was drifting into the R and B world. And so the old formulas of what had been big in the 80s were, were changing in the 90s, and that was a different era entirely. Yeah. Now, another band that I think you, I think you worked, first Bad Company album you worked on, was that Holy Water? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's no secret that, you know, that band at the time, they didn't, like Brian didn't really get on with the rest of them. Is that something like you had to like be a counselor for them at the time? What are your memories of that? A, psycho, a psychotherapist, a counselor, yeah. uh, uh, a manager, um, and you name it, everything else in between. Yeah, because I, I think that Holy Water album is excellent. Oh, it's superb. I mean, Terry Thomas. Terry Thomas is also very, uh, the, the, the producer, was also very, very good at, uh, at, at counseling Brian. Um, if you like Brian, Brian is a, is a, is a little, can be, and, and is a little difficult. However, that being said, you know, I, I knew Brian because he's from my hometown in England. And so I could just, again, you know, I, I, I'm lucky in the respect that I, w- I was a musician and I'm English, but I live in America. And I could, I could tell musicians, hey, shut the fuck up. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, being kind of like uh, a, a record geek and, and taking it from a musician. I could just say, look, you know, exactly what I said. And, but it, yes, it was a little, uh, um, it was a little hairy with with Mick and 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 everyone else. And also, Buck Prager, uh, who was the manager, was also very very instrumental in 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 calming the waters of, of these various personalities. Yeah, and like of course, it, go on. Sorry, sorry. Turned, no, but it turned out to be a spectacular success. Oh yeah, I think those albums with Brian are excellent. Yeah. 
So uh, you know, what can you say? I mean, it's um, they they made you know, they really revamped their 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 brand, and the albums were were, were huge for for Echo. I mean, they were gigantic. Yeah, you mentioned you signed Dream Theater there, Derek. Um, yes, yeah. Were you looking at them as a new, the next Queensrÿche, or because at the time that prog music was uh, very unfashionable? No, you know, actually, I signed. Believe it or not, that, um, as I said to you before, what I tried to do is balance something which I, I was sure was going to be. Um, how can I put this? I was pretty sure that. Gut-wise, scientifically-wise, business-wise, was going to work. At the same time, I tried to nurture something that I thought had a real potential, but had a lot more work to be done. And in fact, when I signed Dream Theater, uh, Port and I put these four uh, uh, demos together without a vocalist. I mean, literally without a vocalist. They, they, were, they were on MCA, I believe, before that, and they got dropped. Uh, and I heard these, these pieces of music, which are spectacular, and I find on a, on a, a kind of a demo deal, you know, a kind of um, a de- development deal to when they got a singer and and, uh, and a great producer. And David, I think David Prater came in and um, they put the album together and it worked. I, my, my, my instinct about what the music sounded like um, developed into what images and words became. I've read the Dream Theater biography, and in that book, David Prater said he had a lot of problems with the band. Is that another another case where you were the counselor? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to say to say yes, it would be an understatement. Yeah, David. David. Uh, he actually did a very good job, but his his um, ability to to um, be a, 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 a psychotherapist, uh, a producer. And 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 a, a good friend was less than was less than than good. That, that's what that's what a producer has to be. They have to get the best out of them. In that so in that respect, they have to you know be all of these things. David David got the best out of them musically, but as as a as a sort of a, a person that could see, speak to them and sit down with them, uh, it was it was difficult. So I had to jump in and do a lot of that work too. Yeah. Now, the success of Pull Me Under did that like wildly exceed your expectations? Because like you had an eight-minute song and it did pretty well on MTV and on radio. Uh, uh, yeah. To tell you the truth, it did. Um, it was it was superbly edited. It was you know it was the it was it was a long song if you know the song. 
is about 12 minutes long. We, we edited the, the best part of it, and and uh, it, it became a big hit. Uh, did it surprise me? Yeah, a little bit, to be honest with Yeah. Yeah, so I just want to ask you about one more band. Um, were, were you at Echo when, when Loudness put out Soldier of Fortune? Uh, yeah. Uh, did you have a hand in getting Mike Facera in as the vocalist then? Because at the time there was a, a couple of bands that they were trying to get American vocalists in to break the uh, US. He, 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 he had just joined actually when, when I was there. Okay. Um, so so they already they already uh, have you know had done that and and, I, and that was kind of the, their tail end of my actual range, if you like. I mean, I'm at bands like Inosidaf, Pantera, ACDC. Uh, the the um, I mean, ACDC was it was a fantastic thing for me. I mean, that was a, something that I was I'm very proud of actually. Yeah, to bring them back on a late with a razor's edge, um, and and also uh, the Lucas Records deal, which is a uh, you know I was the first to get Doctor Dre's first production. Yeah, uh, which is bizarre because I've never been involved in a, in the hip hop world of my life. Yeah. Um, but as far as loudest, loudest was a hold on one to tell you the truth. Yeah. Now you, you mentioned ACDC there. Um, it's no secret that they're very, um, as a group, they're very closed. You know, they don't. If you're in the group, you're in the group. If you're outside, you really are outside. How did they take mm-hmm. to Bruce Fairburn getting involved in the songwriting? Was that difficult? Um, I was lucky again in the respect that um, you're right. They were very insular. They would never allow anyone into their, into their, into the young. You know, it was Angus and Malcolm into the young camp and, and the management. However, um, I, I kind of knew uh, the, 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 you know, what I, what, you know, Stuart Young and Steve Barnett were managing, but I knew who the drivers were, and the young brothers were very tight and close close together, including George, the, the elder brother. And and I knew, I knew George from when I was in the group back in the day. I was in Simon Dupree, and he, and he was in the Easy Beats. You know, so that that kind of uh, little tag, I, I you know brought along to to Angus and Malcolm, and we got along because I guess George said I'm okay, <laughs> you know I'm I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, and I'm an okay guy because I was in, I was on the road to be placed some shows with them, uh, so they allowed me in um, into their inner circle, and I was able to speak to them and say, look, you should reconsider this these guys, and Bruce again is a superb. Musician, but also a super, superb psycho, psycho, psychotherapist, if you like, and 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 moved the band into making the comeback record of their their lives. I think. Yeah. Now, now, as the '90s went on and the music changed, um, did you find it? I'm trying to put it this in the right way. Did you find it uh, more difficult? for labels to trust who you were picking because of the, the bands that you picked in the 80s because they were non-existent then that the whole music style had changed if you understand the question uh, uh, no I, I'm did, did, did the companies I was working for um, yeah like you you signed you signed Slipknot and you signed like who were a completely different band than the bands you were known for signing in the 80s right uh huh so like yeah. did, did you find that like they were some of the labels might have been looking at you saying, "No, nah, he's more he's more of a hard rock guy." You know, no, you just you, you just have to survey. What, I mean, literally, what, I mean, in some some ways, you have to understand what what the public is, what your public and the rock public. I mean, it's rock. It wasn't anything else. I mean, but it's you know that's if you if you focus on what you do best, um, you'll know where the shift goes. Uh, you know, if you smell 
whatever's happening on the on the web on on, on even now on Spotify, I mean, it says all these things are, are happening. And if you see where the end is blocking, you don't know what you kind of know where the public would like or enjoy, and you try to put them together in the band that fits the bill, if you like, as long as they're unique and authentic in their own in their own way. Yeah, like how how difficult is it to get radio airplay for a band like Slipknot because they really are extreme. Impossible. <laughs> but, but but you know the issue that is that's the same thing was 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 true of Pantera. I knew they were never going to get radio. I knew they were never going to MTV. But what I did know is that if they played in front of fifty people one night and they came back in the same venue, uh, you know, three or six months later, in front of five hundred, because the word of mouth was that they were unbelievably incredibly uh, incredible live. And the same way for Slipknot, actually. Yeah. I, I just have a couple yeah, of questions. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Derek. Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Well, the, that's, um, that's, again, it, it, you know, rock music, and, and even even back in the MTV and radio days, if you weren't good live, then you were never going to make it in the, in, the, in the biggest fashion. You had to have... Your fan base was not just built on the radio and MTV. It had to be built on you, you know, reaching out and, and, and making your fans happy. And that that's and that's that's good for today. It was good yesterday. It was good twenty ten years ago. It was good fifty years ago. Yeah. Now I just got a couple of questions to to finish up with. Um, can you think of any bands that got away from it that made it big? Well, there were a couple that I tra- I, I passed on and. and uh, and, and I could, could have had because it was offered to me, um, but I didn't at that point. I didn't get it. One, one I, I remember in particular was Beck. Okay. Um, and and uh, I was played the uh, the very very first big hit. Um, uh, you know, with the loser. And and I heard that song and I thought it's it's a copy of a Beatles song and it sounds like shit. So I got a pass on it. And you know, I, I didn't, I didn't get it. On what I did not get. Um, so honestly, I, yes, it passed, and it became, he became a, a Grammy winner and a, and a, and a you know, Hall of Famer. So what can I say? But there weren't, weren't too many. There weren't too many that I didn't. I, I wasn't. I, let's put it this way: I wasn't the guy that turned down the Beatles. There were a couple of things that that. that um, there was a couple of times when there were uh, bidding wars, if you like. Uh, I don't remember which quite, quite, and usually when there's a bidding war going on between labels, I would drop out because I knew that it's the expectation of a bidding war for a band, if you got involved in that, was way too high. And no matter how you did it, and now how, however you you uh, you however you uh, spent the money, the expectation was way too high for what the band would do. So I never put, get involved in that stuff. But yeah, Beck. But the only the one that I do remember was Beck. And and uh, what can I say? You know, that's, that it didn't. It didn't. I didn't get it. But it, other people got it, and so be it. Yeah. Was there one band you signed that they wildly exceeded your spe- your expectations as regards success? Like, like will Bon Jovi be the obvious one, or is there somebody else? No, I knew I knew Bon Jovi. Would be. I really did. I knew Bon Jovi would make it. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, maybe you know Nickelback actually, because the stand which I signed, you know, uh, leader of men. I knew he was a great songwriter. The only thing about Nickelback and people laugh at them down, which is you know sad, was and is the fact that they had and, and still do 
have have incredible songs. I mean, they, you know, they're he, you know they're great songwriters. Um, and how you remind me was a superb, well written, crafted song. But live, they were less than great as far as far as a star star band, and that was an issue that you know, they, they, the, the the band themselves became much bigger than the band's fans um, uh, fandom became, and therefore. Yeah, you know, that's why it kind of went from like being gigantic to being ho hum. Whereas you know bands like Pantera and 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 even Bon Jovi and you know the other other bands, ACDC, they have their fans because they were great live. Nickelback really were based on songs and not the fans. But the but the band themselves, as as a, as a record selling entity, were became gigantic. Yeah, yeah, and much bigger than I thought actually. Yeah, and final question, Derek, before I let you go. Do you think the role of the A&R man now has changed completely, or is it still pretty similar to when you start? No, I think it's completely, it's completely different. It's, it's not even, uh, not, you know, to, to build a band, an, an artist. Listen, I, I was lucky in the respect we could develop the artist. I mean, Bon Jovi only, only came through and became the band that, that it became and had a career. Um, after the third album, you know, and a lot of money being spent on the band, you know, so that 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 that's, that doesn't happen anymore. So you know, it, it it was artist development. It was about albums. Now it's about songs, and it's about having you know streaming and having that song being catchy. So the the idea of artist development from a label is is a label point of view. I'm saying is is non-existent. However. As a band, I mean, if you're a band, you go out there and play, play, and play, and play your ass off and develop your fan base. That's how you become, that's how you become uh, popular. And yeah. that it always was. I mean, but it, it's even more so these days. Yeah, I, th- I think you're involved in a band. Are you involved with Inglorious at all, the English band? Yes, I, I, I put it together.
Yeah, I think they're I think they're an amazing band. I think their their albums are excellent. We've had Nathan on the show, brilliant singer, a superb singer, and that's one where I really get involved um, because he's he's a superb singer. He had a, in fact, he had an album written for him, um, and he he played it to me, you know, and I was in the, in the states, and, and I said, Nathan, what you know, what is this? And it was a well produced well-produced uh, album, but it really had no, no character to it. I said, you've got to scrap that. They said, what are you talking about? And I said, is this you or is this someone else? He said, well, I've got various writers. I said, no, it's got, it's, the band has got to be about you. It's got to be authentically yours. And so he literally scrapped it and he said, what, where do you see me? And, I, and I, what I did was send him a list of five albums for him to listen to. And, and there were the first two Led Zeppelin records, the first Deep, first Deep Purple records, you know, et cetera, you know, and the first, the Bad Company record. And he started writing. And this is his first album. And I said, this is what I wanted to hear from you, not people writing for you. You've got to be the band. And developed from there. Yeah, they're an ama- I think they're an amazing band. Um, yeah, they are. Yeah, so you're still as active in the music business as you've always been. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm... I'm I'm uh, overseeing a couple of other companies, and, and look, I'm actually putting a couple of bands, super group things together, and writing with things. Yes, I'm, I'm still involved, even even in my old age. Yeah, so you're still as enthusiastic about it as well, then? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, what, you know, what, what am I going to do? Sit and play golf, or sit sit down to <laughs> shut the board, or play or play golf with Donald Trump? No, thank you. That that's uh, not not my thing. Okay, all right. Well, Derek, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and th- thanks for giving me uh, so much of your time. Yeah, my pleasure for you. Okay. Yeah. All right, Derek. So have okay. a good rest of the day. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 There you go. Richie's talk with the uh, legendary Derek Schulman. I know that guy, his name comes up in so many different rock and metal stories. It's uh, it's just pretty much a regular occurrence. And so uh, very cool that Richie was able to uh, have a great conversation with Derek. And I mean, amazing. That, I mean, that guy is still so busy and still has the time to take the time to uh, talk to Richie, tell him all those great stories and his opinions and all that good stuff. So uh, big thanks to Derek for coming on Focus on Metal and uh, really sharing all that with us. And also I should mention that the final song we played there is from Inglorious, just put out their second album titled uh, Very Fittingly 2, and another another great album from uh, from Nathan and the guys in Inglorious and these they no no they just take all those elements that Derek is talking about and shoves them all together and they come out with some great stuff. First album was fantastic. We had Nathan on the show talking about that one. As I said, the new one just came out recently, getting a lot of reviews over in Europe. Would be good to get things pumped up for that band over here in the U.S. as well. But again, uh, two has you know. 12 tracks of great stuff from that band. Definitely all very, very cool stuff. Got, like Derek talked about, Shades of Deep Purple and Bad Company and also just Nathan's really amazing voice in there. So good stuff there. If you like any of that kind of music, then definitely you want to check out Inglorious, both their first album and the amazingly titled Two. And while we're talking about amazing things, just want to remind everybody out there about a site called Earpeeler, earpeeler.com. Great stuff there. I know, hey, they're buddies of ours, but I just want to throw out earpeeler.com. If you like hard rock and metal podcast, then you definitely want to go over to earpeeler.com where you can discover all kinds of great shows as well as keep up with all of the ones you already love. So uh, show those guys the love they deserve earpeeler.com so uh, that's it 
That is uh, a wrap for another week right here on Focus on Metal. We, of course, have definitely got some more great stuff coming at you in the next couple of weeks. And I just want to throw it out right now, a few weeks ahead of time that we, yes, we are heading towards our summer break. And uh, this will be an eventful one as uh, during that summer break, I'll probably also be moving the studio to a brand new location. So we'll try to coincide that with our summer break because, yes, uh, my soon-to-be ex-wife has told me that uh, it is time to get the studio out of the house. So uh, that's where that one stands. But in the meantime, between this week and next week, if you want to keep up with what's going on at Focus on Metal, you can, of course, go to our main website, focusonmetal.net, where we've got... uh, all kinds of episodes up there. Five years worth of focus on metal there. So uh, if you're missing us midweek and you're looking for something else to listen to from us, definitely go to focusonmetal.net where you will find all those great interviews and shows to listen to. And of course, you can also check us out at focusonmetal.blogspot.com. Richie's always posting up on Facebook. And I know he's not copying anybody else. It's his own thing, despite what a one uh, tweeter out there thinks and uh, also you can uh, always keep up with us as i just mentioned on twitter so uh, once again that's it there ain't no more that put a fork in it this puppy is done for another week of focus on metal so thanks for listening and for richie myself and everybody else here at focus on metal have yourselves a great metal week and until we talk to you again next week as always Remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.